Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. I'm here with Carrie Bartholomew, and I'm so happy to see you again and have a chance to talk with you today. And um, uh, Carrie joined us on a solid ground live stream not that long ago, and we had a great conversation. I felt it went it was very fast paced and really a lot of information, a lot of a lot of great discussion came out of that. And um, I thought it would be really nice to have a chance to just sit one-on-one -on -one and have um, uh, the opportunity to hear a little bit more about you and a little bit more about your, your experiences around this ideological subversion of culture that we've been experiencing and, and what your thoughts are. And um, the way we met originally was you reached out to me after I put my first Antioch video up and invited me to come on your show that you host on your YouTube channel, which is called Be Not Afraid. And we had a, a really lovely conversation then. So I appreciated that opportunity to, to speak with you and your audience. The same, it, it, it was very um, surprising to see that mental health, you would think that would be the last bastion of a place where people could go and feel safe it's literally that safe space is no longer safe. Yeah, it was really surprising. And I, I also realized that probably a lot of people weren't aware of how, how significant the issue was there. So um, thank you for your interest in that and for helping to get that information out. And so could we start maybe just, would you talk a little bit about yourself, a little bit of your background and kind of how you entered this conversation, how you come to be involved in um, the, the big issues that you've been so passionate about. Sure. Yeah. Um, anybody who saw, saw your episode knows I aged out of the foster system. So when I was eight years old, I put myself in the foster care um, because I saw I saw really low expectations, just a very low, even as an eight-year-old, I could look at life and go, this is not what I want. And um, so I lived in 18 foster homes in nine years. Oh. And um, everything in life has been a series of decisions. And I'm proud of most of the decisions that I've made. There's some things that, you know, I wish I would have done differently or I wished but part of that is going to college and I'm kind of glad I dodged that bullet. Um, but I, all of a sudden in 20, um, was it 2020? George Floyd. When, when George Floyd happened, it was like life completely got taken away. Like mm -hmm. everything, everything I valued, every, everything that was me became nothing but the fact that I'm a minority. Mm. And that was something I was not willing. I'd never looked around. I've never, never seen the world that way. I don't look at people and say, um, they must have anim animosity towards me, or they must, um, want the worst things for me. I, I just don't look at life through a lens of resentment mm. Mm. and to be told that I'm supposed to, and worse to be told that this little human that I brought into the world is supposed to look at life that way was something I was not willing to compromise on. So that's how it started. And then um, in 2020 with election season, I saw a lot of people who normally would never 
um, have conversations, would never, just the, the Asian and Black experience didn't usually mesh. That's just, mm. and, and I have interviews with people where we talk about it. Um, and all of a sudden I was watching these people who were pretty quiet, pretty, my viewpoint back then would have been kind of elitist, um, uh, opening up and talking about it and being very frightened of the, of situations coming towards us. So I started listening to them and what they were saying started to make sense. And so I just decided that I was going to be a truth teller. I was going to tell people not to be victims. And I was going to tell people to, um, to not just trust blindly. I think it's good to, to trust when things are proven, you know, but I don't know that there's a lot of things proven, right? So I just think people shouldn't trust blindly and they should. We're being taught right now in our schools to look at things through a very specific lens. And I think that's a very limiting worldview where if you take the little hole off of your glasses, you know, then you can actually look at the world um, and see other people's perspectives. And I think that's the healthier way to look at life. So you just, you really had a rich and complex backstory in your own life prior to coming into 2020 when things, my goodness, my kids are being so loud with the dog right now. I'm sorry about that. I may have to mute in a minute and holler at some children. Sure. We'll see. Um, so I thought it was a horse. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tiny dog, a tiny, oh little, yeah, she's like this big, but this loud. So uh, <laughs> I've got one. <laughs> yeah. So it sounds like you, you, despite you had a, a very challenging upbringing and, and it sounds like you took a lot of responsibility for your upbringing on yourself. Okay. One moment. I am going to, I'm going to holler at some kids. Sure. All right. So that's okay. how we do things around here. We just, we just, we just turn off our video and we holler at our children. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you, you took a lot of responsibility on yourself, even from a really young age, when you say that you placed yourself in foster care and then the experience of going through 18 homes in nine years, that's incredible. That's so much change and, and so many different experiences I'm sure you could write books on just what that was like for you. And, and, but the way that you tell the story, it's, it's with a sense of agency. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think it's important to understand that there was one person who was with me the majority of that time. And that was my counselor. Oh, wow. I had an amazing counselor, Paul Martin. And um, no matter where I went, he remained my counselor. I don't think that's necessarily normal, but I just think that it was a, it was a beautiful relationship. And I definitely wished, I definitely wished that, that I was just like, why can't you just take your foster license out and adopt me? Why can't your family, take, you know, um, because he would, he would show up when I was packing up and moving to the next house with my black garbage bag, you know, he wow. would, he, he would be there and, and he would, he would advocate for me and say, mm -hmm. this is a good kid. She doesn't deserve to be in juvenile. 
Mm. you know but the thing is is back then I'm getting way more teary than I normally do but back then um adopting light-skinned black girls was not the currency that it is today Mm. so as soon as someone was upset with you for any reason Mm -hmm. they would call and just have you moved wow very very fast you you go to school and come home and your bags would be packed or your your garbage bag so but I realized really early that if I brought on if I brought this chip on my shoulder Mm -hmm. you know if if I brought this chip on my shoulder that there was nothing I also had another person and I think I spoke about him before my teacher, Mr. Garza. Mm. So two men um, that were just very good souls. And in retrospect, I'm pretty sure that Paul was homosexual mm-hmm. and Mr. Garza was Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And this is in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Neither one of these, I mean, both of these would have been marginalized people, but they were wonderful people. Mm. Um, yeah. So both of those two people taught me, um, yeah, that I had agency, that I had a right to, um, to plan and make decisions for my life and to carve out what I wanted my life to look like. It sounds like the relationships with them, with Paul in particular, but also with Mr. Garza provided a sense of constancy and sort of a, a, a stable thread throughout some of those experiences that you had definitely for Paul Mr. Garza was like a um like a caveman hitting you on the head (laughs) (laughs) like like just knocking some sense into you and just very clearly he was just like you know you're a rough case there's a lot of teachers who did not want to have you in their class Mm -hmm. um but I see in you great potential but you have to make those choices and it was literally that quick for me he said, you have to make those choices. And I thought, you mean I have power? Mm. You know, this, this is the first time in my life I was like, I, I get some say in this tragedy and I can turn it into something different. Mm-hmm. And it was immediately like we had that conversation the next day. I saw a kid who was getting picked on and getting his head flushed down the toilet and mm. I stood up for him. Mm-hmm. And from then on, that was my life. Oh. and it That's, still is it's I a really powerful parents. lesson yeah yeah no yeah. go ahead about parents well so I have parents today um I've found myself a parental advocate mm-hmm. and I have parents who send me messages regularly about what's going on in their schools and being gaslit by by teachers and administration and um and standing up for them when I want to just say, come on, you can do this for yourself, right? Like you, you can do this, but so many people are so afraid of the current culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm, I'm not as afraid. I mean, I still like my knees still quake and, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm much more afraid of what will happen if we don't stand. Well, and it, it's, it is so intimidating to stand up to something that's so sure of itself. Right. And this, this, the people who are buying the ideology are so sure of themselves. They're so aggressively sure that it is, it is intimidating. I can understand why the parents would feel that way. I I have certainly felt that way as well. 
but it doesn't make sense that they're sure of themselves because there's no logic behind it. And they literally say that logic is whiteness. Mm -hmm. So then they don't have to, they don't have to even answer fundamental questions about their beliefs on them. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So then flashing forward to 2020, your, what you said about uh, you, you had never really seen yourself it, you hadn't experienced life in this really, it, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like you had a new racialization of your experiences, of your dynamics with other people. You describe your, your experiences with um, Paul and with Mr. Garza, and you, and you mentioned some characteristics of them that it's, it's a pretty diverse, I mean, to use in the modern parlance, we talk about diversity and multiculturalism, and it's like you're interacting with people from different backgrounds and, and used to going having relationships across different identity categories without too much difficulty relating to people, would you say? No? Yeah. Yeah. I would say the difficulty that I had um, was the difficulty that lots of people have who are growing up as minorities, especially in places where there's not a lot of minorities. Okay. So there was a time in my life when I definitely wished I was white when I was a little girl, you know, Um, even when it came to dating, I was afraid to let a boy know that I liked him because one boy I let know that. And well, actually, you know, it's one of those things where a friend tells a friend Mm. and the friend said, oh, she's cute and everything, but I like my bread white, not toasted. Oh, wow. That's, that's the, (laughs) that's the reality of, you Mm -hmm. know, life. Mm -hmm. Um, There was one boy, I might've shared this story before. I'm not sure um, where he would not drink out of the water fountain that I drink out of. Mm. And um, it, my friends were so upset. They were so upset with him. And then he said, uh, well, he didn't say anything. I was just kind to him. Mm-hmm. I was just kind to everybody. And so at the end of the year, he grabbed my yearbook and he's like, can I write in it? And I'm, I'm kind of afraid to let him write an X. That's forever. And he wrote, I was wrong. Wow. I've had those experiences multiple times in my life where people mm-hmm. have opinions about what minorities must be like, mm-hmm. um, what specifically black people must be like. And I've even went as far as to say, I'm not even black, mm-hmm. I'm biracial. Mm-hmm. If you cut an apple in half, there's two sides of an apple. I'm just equally this as I am this, but really who I am is just me. Mm-hmm. And So that, that was my experience. The majority of people didn't care. Once in a while, people would care. And if they were ugly about it, you just walk away and and charge them with being stupid. (laughs) So So you didn't take that on yourself? No, no. I Mm -hmm. I could have taken on so much for myself. And that is such an, I mean, that's immutable, right? Like that, that is who I am. And it wasn't until I got into into college. I did go to college for a year and then I went to an um, actor studio after that. But it wasn't until I got into college that I embraced being brown, just in that, you know, I'm exotic and I can play a billion different things and nobody knows what I am until I open up my mouth mouth and tell Mm -hmm. them. And it was just, it never was really an issue. And when I got into the city, I mean, there were like men who, who wanted to date me as a notch in their belt. Mm. That was, that's the realization again. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, so that's, 
that's a reality. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's any worse than anyone else's experience. Mm. You know, I wasn't extremely bullied in school. Um, I, I had hell at home, but my school life wasn't what so many people's is. I never would experience things like cutting mm -hmm. or anorexia or bulimia or, or mm -hmm. being like extremely overweight. None of that was mm -hmm. a part of my growing up. And so I look at those and I say, well, that, that's just as bad. Mm. And I know people will go, well, no, because you're, you're a nine on the aces. So you've mm -hmm. had it really, really bad, but I can't, I can't negate their experiences. Mm -hmm. That seems like, then you're not really thinking about people as being human beings. And for anybody who doesn't know the ACE score is the adverse childhood events score. And it's a way of looking at experiences that people will have had before a certain age of development and how that can impact a person's trajectory. And it's um, a nine is a very high score. What is the total? I mean, is it, is it nine out of nine or is it out of 10? Okay. I, I think they've changed it, but it was 10. Okay. Yeah. So the only thing that hadn't happened is no one had been killed in front of me. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a, it's a list of terrible things that you wouldn't want to have happen to any child. Yeah. So, so it's a real testament to your resilience of spirit that you can talk about that just, and, and have come from what you've come from just knowing that, that you've been through that many difficult experiences in your life and still have the optimism that you have. Well, it's really upsetting that they teach the ACE score because then they do project onto people, mm. you know, they, they basically give them a reason. Mm. If I've lived in 18 foster homes, how many foster brothers and sisters do you think I've had, mm. you know, a lot mm. and none of them walked away. Okay. Because they bought into the world owes me, mm -hmm. um, and because the world owed them and they, and instead of figuring out that they can, I know people hate that, that statement about picking yourself up by your bootstraps, but, mm -hmm. but that's the reality. The reality is you, you walk into a place and you've got your bag of, you've got your coupon of food stamps. I'm dating myself here, but you've got your, your food stamps and you stand in the line and you see the people whispering and your choice is to not care if they're whispering, um, to get upset and like yell at them for mocking you or whatever, um, or to go, I don't want these. Mm -hmm. And to look outside and to go, oh, look, Taco Bell's hiring. I'm going to go get a job. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you move from Taco Bell to, for me, Taco Bell to receptionist to, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, 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 eventually getting married. Mm -hmm. But you have your choices and when they take away your agency and, and break you, they are infan infantilizing you. Mm -hmm. They're treating you like a baby. I don't understand why anybody would want that in their lives. No, I, I know. And it's such a difficult thing because when people have been through difficult experiences, some very traumatic experiences, there's the the temptation to fall into resentment is very strong and it's based on something that's very valid. It's that, that you're grieving and you have pain and you want 
somehow for that to be made better. And for someone, the sometimes it's a person you can think of who hurt you and you want that person to make you whole again. And the fact is, the hard fact is that it's often not going, I mean, it's very rare for that to come from something external. It's going to have to be internal resources that we draw on. And it's hard to say that to someone because it sounds uncaring, but when we realize it for ourselves, it is very liberating. Right. Isn't that funny? They use terms like liberation when they want to basically chain you up. Mm. These, these, the, the mental chains that they want to put on you so that you can't do for yourself. Mm-hmm. When the reality is, is that the kindest thing you can do for a person is give them the steps, mm-hmm. right? So you, you lay it out and you stand next to, next to them, especially like as a parent, you say, okay, well, you're not doing well in this. So let's figure out the ways to help you get there. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, is that if you help somebody too much, that is possible. And if you help somebody too much, it can be a cruelty mm-hmm. because then they don't believe in their ability to do something for themselves. Yeah, that's very well said. And so going back to what you said about 2020 and how people started to treat you differently and you started to feel like a difference in the way that that you were being communicated with, I, I think that's a fascinating topic to explore i i it seems so unhealthy that we've got all these people out there saying white people are racist because what that says is it says to white people we can read your mind but what it says to you know anybody else is they don't like you white people don't like you like you're being judged and so it's like this double-edged sword that's or it's even worse than that it's like a it's it's a hurt cutting two directions Right. And it's making everybody fearful of each other and everybody intimidated by communication. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's, it seems like it's adding something very destructive. And that, it sounds like that's what you're speaking to. It's going backwards. It's mm-hmm. going backwards. So I, w- I was telling you about this and I just will tell this story. Um, mm-hmm. I, I went to my son's school conference and a teacher said, I, I know I can tell you this. I know you'll be a person who can accept this, which in its way is kind of gaslighting because you're assuming what I'm going to feel about this. But the person said that um, she was proud to see my son embracing his blackness mm-hmm. because he's playing a character in a play who's not black, <laughs> <laughs> but because he's powerful and he he speaks back it's newsies so um so because he is this leader she perceives that as blackness so she's stereotyping his behavior and calling that black yes okay and and that's really tricky because i go out and speak to speak at groups talk to senators I'm, i'm doing a debate against dei next week and just talking to a person one-on-one about it is so frightening because this is a white lady you were saying i would honestly say a, i mean a young person okay this, this is a young person and um my heart hurts for this person because she's being taught that what she's doing is enlightened 
right? So she's been, she's been taught at, at school that what she's doing is compassionate and enlightened and she sees more than others do. And, um, and what I see is somebody who is being taught to be racist. Now there are people who don't like the term racist and think you're being judgmental. I'm not because I understand and I have compassion. I have great compassion for the fact that this young woman has been taught to see color and for it to matter so much that she would identify these characters of strength and resilience. He is, he is the lead and so it's Jack Kelly, right? So this character of oh, strength and resilience, but the other boy who's playing it doesn't have a biracial mother. Mm. So it's not blackness for him. Mm. And, and how do you have that conversation with people? Because you need to, we have to have these conversations because um, they're being taught. These, these people coming out of, of academia are being taught that what they're doing is compassionate and they are really pushing people back down. Mm. I do not want my child to ever see who he is based on the color or lack thereof of his skin, because my son could be your son. <laughs> He's very pale and freckly mm -hmm. and, um, and nobody would even know that he's biracial if I wasn't his mom walking around with him all the time. Mm. So, yeah. And so this, as you say, you, you're used to talk, you're used to engaging in these conversations and discussing them with people who are addressing the philosophy behind it. But yes. when you're actually entering into a one-on-one -on -one and someone is sort of using applied CRT with you directly, it's, there's it's just, just a whole nother ballgame. It is for anyone else. Yeah. You know, you sit there and you, of course, like the first thing that you want to say is, well, what, excuse yeah. me. But then as soon as you say that you are, if you're me, you are the angry black woman. Mm right? So, so everything has to be tempered under, okay, I don't want people to see me that way. And I want to reach this person and talk to this person with love mm -hmm. because it's not their fault. This is no different than what was happening in China. Mm -hmm. You know, the red, the red guard wasn't a bunch of evil people. They were people who were brainwashed basically from cradle to grave. And that's what we're doing to our kids. Yeah, and that that and that makes me think of something that um, Ben Harris said the other day when I was speaking with him. I don't know if you had a chance, but if you do have a chance to watch that, I thought his his the conversation was great. He added some perspectives that I hadn't thought before. There's some new ways of framing things, but one of the things that he said just very offhandedly was um, he corrected himself when he called he he made a reference to somebody being a racist or a misogynist, and he says no, well people aren't racists or misogynist people or people that some, some of them have racist or misogynist tendencies or, you know, qualities or something like that. So he, I, and I thought that was an important qualifier because it is so we're in this time of such extremes. Right. And the labeling is really um, off the hook with this stuff. I mean, it's really, in this tendency to throw people away for one act or for one way of thinking. And I, I think that your 
point about how young people are being taught is really well made. And I've had the same thought that there, there's a core of truth in all of this. And when you talk about having to have, having to like censor yourself so as not to be the angry black woman, there's a, there's a schema in your head and there's a, there's a thing in your mind that you're trying to avoid because you've been, you, you've learned to, to think about this as something that you, 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 and it's something that not everybody goes through life having to think about. So it's a different, um, a different set of considerations that people will have based on their background or their experiences. And so there's a, there's a core of truth in all the things that are being attempted to be addressed by this, but it's the way that it's being implemented. And the, if you'll forgive the expression, the black and white thinking is just, it's very reductive and it's missing a lot of the nuance in human experience and conversation. Well, and that's the thing about the nuance is that, um, just because a, a black person might, a black woman has to worry about being called the angry black woman mm-hmm. doesn't mean that there aren't stereotypes that, I mean, for me, a much bigger thing than the fact that I was, that I am of color is that I grew up so poor, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm always working towards, oh no, we do not dress like slobs in our family. We do not, you know, image matters not mm-hmm. not in like a super shallow sort of way but I don't want anybody to think of me as a charity case mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um and I think that's more universal I think that that class becomes more of a conversation that that people can have that isn't um that allows the conversation to be brought to the table mm-hmm. because when you bring when you bring um, race to the table, you are assuming that behind every closed door of a black person or a Mexican person or an Asian person, that their lives are exactly the same in every single home. Mm-hmm. And that's no different than it is in, in white homes. Yeah, They can be, you know, you may go to the same church, you may eat the same kinds of food for dinner, but it doesn't mean that you're watching the same thing on TV. It doesn't mean that you have the same study habits. None of that is the same. And so we, we are losing humanity. But then the mm-hmm. other thing is, is that I do think at the top, there are some pretty vile racists up there at the top. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, there are people who know what they're doing and they want the conversation mm-hmm. to be, let's obsess, the, let's obsess over race. Mm-hmm. Divide um, and conquer. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I feel like for the majority of people, we're just trying to do the best we can, mm-hmm. but there are people who want us divided and race is a really color is a really easy way to do that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your point about how the experience of poverty impacts your interactions and your self-perception and your self-presentation. That's my mom grew up in and out of the foster system. Her mom was institutionalized a few times during her childhood. And just, there was, it's a really complex story, but she went through, she had a very high ACE score. She went through a lot as a kid and um, she was the recipient of charity over and over as a kid in foster care. And then from, from church charities and stuff. And so for her, it was a similar thing. She had such a 
uh, it was so important to present a certain way. And we grew up poor too, but but not to the extent that what she had gone through. But there was always that consideration for her of not, you know, we very much had to avoid looking like white trash was, you know, kind of the, the way you would have put it where I was from. And um, where I'm from also, uh, white was the minority. And so some of those other experiences, like people not wanting to date me, families, I had a boyfriend in, in high school whose family didn't like me because I was white and people would switch to Spanish around me so that I wouldn't hear. And, you know, those experiences are, are like they transcend these superficial characteristics. You don't know something of substance about somebody just from looking at their skin. And it's crazy that in 2023, we have to say that. Yeah. That's that's the whole thing. We have all of these diversity, equity, and inclusion agendas, mm -hmm. but we can't sit down and have a conversation to find the common thread because mm -hmm. that's that's what would help. Mm -hmm. That that is ultimately what would help, and that would make it so that when I walk down the halls, I'm not afraid. I mean, I have places where I go when I work at the school or other places where I want to be the last one to leave because in my head I'm thinking they're saying things about me, mm. even though wonderful human beings, great people. But in my head, I'm thinking, oh, well, I can leave so they can have the real conversation. Mm. I never thought that way before. I never thought that way before. And wow. what they've done really is somebody, I think it was your, your um, co- co-host Aaron I think mm -hmm. I think he said that there's a book called the rape of the mind yeah I, have, I remember him mentioning that yeah I, I have not gotten that out of my head because mm -hmm. that's exactly what it's like you're just mm -hmm. like I did not consent to this mm -hmm. this is not the world that I want and the fact that you're giving that, that we're giving in to to the Antifa crowd that we're giving in to people who I'm going to get myself in trouble and be blunt, but who are sitting downstairs playing video games, doing whatever else they're doing, and then getting out and going and fighting and demanding and saying, you owe me, you owe me, you owe me. And I'm just like, shut up. Shut up. We're tired of it. Mm -hmm. We're, and, and, and what do you get in the end? They don't even know what they get. That's the whole point. They don't even know what they're fighting for mm. because they don't want to. I've talked to enough people who've escaped communism to know that they don't want what they're going for. Yeah, it, that is an interesting point because it doesn't seem like it has an end point, what we're, what we're dealing with right now. One of the things that I've noticed and a lot of people have addressed is this whole idea of like the white privilege thing and that the white person is automatically racist and automatically, you know, has all these, there's this whiteness that needs to be rooted out. But going through these trainings doesn't absolve you. No. So there's no absolution except in your death, I suppose, because you don't get, and, and it sounds, this sounds ridiculous to say it, but you don't get like some white person badge where you're like been through DEI, I'm good now or something. It's so continuous. It's yes. It's a perpetual um, experience of like self-flagellation. And then, but what is it like on the other side? What's the, the, you know, BIPOC as they call it. If and and, I, and this is another thing, and this is a trivial point, perhaps, but there's this really, um, it's so it's it's such a microaggression to say non-white, to say white and non-white, 
now that's not that's not okay but everything but when you use like an acronym like BIPOC how is that not as um dehumanizing as just non-white I mean how is that not the same thing it's just you replace the word so I don't know if I'm articulating that very well but do you know what I'm saying yeah the first thing is is that these people are always projecting Mm-hmm. constantly. So when they say, if you don't X, you are a raciness. If you don't X, you are a raciness. So we must be, um, what is it? Uh, center around the marginalized, right? right? Yeah. But those marginalized must think the exact same way because when you yeah. don't think just like them, they erase you. And then you're considered white, white adjacent or something like that, or, or that or you not internalized white supremacy. Um, or, or not considered at all, mm-hmm. or you, you go to Congress to speak and you've, you know, driven two hours to get there. And they say, we recognize that there are minorities in the room, but they don't speak for their collective. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. That has that actually been said about yes. that? That's an experience you had. Not, not me, but it's, okay. it's something that people in my group have, and it has been recorded. They don't speak for their collective. They don't speak for their collective. Wow. The woman that I'm debating next week is the person who said it. Oh gosh. Okay. So, um, so erasing us is the goal and they start off with, you know, just erasing you. You Mm. don't have a voice. They, uh, marginalize, not marginalized. They, um, they do the best to to keep your algorithm out so that people aren't hearing you. You know, Mm -hmm. people will constantly say, why don't you speak at this? And other people will say, they don't want to hear her voice. You know, and they wow. don't because it's um I I put to sleep a lot of their narratives. So and I, I understand that. Um sorry, you had asked another part. What was the second well, part? Well, it just it seems like there's a the the dichotomy in their argument is that you either are all for CRT or you don't believe racism exists and race is not a factor. Right. And that's not, I, I think that's a false dichotomy because you can have a nuanced view of how people interact with one another based on race. And you can have, you can understand that there are all kinds of disparities in, and experiences that are going to be influenced by racial and ethnic background and community um population demographics and et cetera, et cetera. But it's just so varied and so complex. I, yeah. I think that the, the false dichotomy is a real problem here. Yeah, well, you have to think about it like this. Within the black culture, it is whiteness to get an education. Most mm. people most people are shamed if they are intelligent. If, if they read, the, Black men get bullied if they want to go to school. Women, it's a different story, but for Black boys especially. So you are not coming to the table with a lot of reason. You know, you might have common sense, but they've really tried to beat that out of you. They've tried to turn you into political pawns who you don't have to think. You just have to know that you do what you're supposed to do. Where Um, do you think that comes from? And I'm going to ask that because I, where I grew up, it was a real underachiever mentality. Like I got made fun of so bad when I played violin for a year that I was embarrassed to play it. And you know, you just didn't, you didn't want to be in the honors classes. You didn't want to be the smart kid. 
that was really bad. It was an ugly look to be a nerd or to be intelligent. And I didn't grow up um, where I grew up. Um, the racial makeup was mostly Hispanic. There was probably a similar minority of black and white kids. And, yeah. but it's that same, that same underachiever culture that, well, where do you think that comes from? Well, there are people who've always wanted us, wanted us to be allegiant to the state, mm. right? Since the Rockefellers. So if they've always wanted us to be allegiant to the state, they need people on the bottom who don't believe in their capabilities. So when I talk about systemic racism, because I do think it's, I do think it's systemic, but I think it's more systemic classism. Mm. Maybe it's both. Mm. Um, but systemic racism is telling that child who comes to school as a five-year-old, you can't really, I mean, there's so many obstacles in your way, you know, being thrilled when your child gets a C plus on a paper and be like, here, here you go. And you're just like, um, I'm not happy with that. You know, if, if that is the grade that my child mentally is capable of, I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. But if it's because they're a slacker, Mm -hmm. then I want you to help raise them up. I don't want it to be okay because, well, that's what's expected of these kids. And so you have these people down at the bottom who that's what's expected of them. And that's what teachers have been taught to expect from them. Mm -hmm. And that has been the shocking, the most shocking thing, because I used to be the biggest supporter of teachers. You know, if a teacher needs a coffee, just let me know because I'll run to the store and grab them. You know, anytime you need a volunteer, I'm there all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel bad for them because I know that there are excellent teachers who hate this and who feel like they're taken hostage. Mm -hmm. But these younger ones, and and not all of them. I do have younger people who are studying to be teachers now who send me information and they're like, what's going on? Oh, that's Um, good. I do. I do. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. and I'm religious and I, I pray for them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we need to. Um, so you've got them, you've got this, this dichotomy of, of people who have been taught that education is bad, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have these, this other group of people who, who do achieve and they become the leaders but in order to be leaders, they need followers. And the way that they have their followers is to keep that other group down. Mm. And I think that there is a, an internal, hugely within the, the black race that's been taught to them to hate themselves. Mm. And, um, and when you go in and you try to lift that up, they despise you. They really do. And mm-hmm. it is, it is hard because, um, I don't have all the answers, but I am a thinker and I am a person who I do have a lot of compassion and I do see that there are alternatives and ways that we could actually raise everyone instead of making everybody hate each other. Because here's the thing. Oh, that's it. You said, where does this end? That was mm-hmm. the thing. Just, okay. Here's the thing. Once you get rid of all the white people that have caused all your problems, then you start looking at your neighbors and they caused your problems. 
So it never ends. When you are taught a constant steady resentment, resentment is what you are fed. Mm-hmm. And that is what they're fed. When you are taught a constant thing of resentment and that's critical resentment theory. Now, I don't even call it critical. Wow. Theory. I like that. Critical resentment theory. Yeah. And when you're taught that, it doesn't just end the second all the white people are dead. Or the second all the white people are out picking cotton, because I've literally seen people say that this ends when white people are in slavery, right? So it, it doesn't end at that point because you already hate. It mm. is kind of the center of your heart. Mm. So, and and the people on the top don't want it to ever end because that could threaten their power. And it's really all comes down to power. We think that it's a black and white issue, as you said, mm-hmm. but it's ultimately a po- power in the haves and have nots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's well stated. And it is a bleak thought. I mean, the concept of the purity spiral, where you eliminate the offensive thing, but then as you spiral inwards you find more and more offense so it would be like eliminate the whites and then eliminate the biracial people and then so on and so forth and then eliminate any anything that reminds you of them and on and on until you cannibalize your own forces really just like we've done through history and so you mentioned that you you know you have some thoughts on how we could be doing this in a way that uplifts everybody. And so that I'm really interested in hearing what you think about that, because, you know, there, as I, I keep coming back to this, there, it's not, it's not, it's a, it's a false way to address a real problem. It's a terrible way to address something that is at its heart, something real, which is the, the tension, the disparity, and the the reality of life in a country with a lot of different, with a diverse racial and ethnic background where people experience life or can tend to experience life differently depending on who they are and where they are. And as you say, there's so many factors. Poverty is a huge one and many, many more, too many to just list. But um, the, I think I think that one of the reasons why this has taken hold is that it's, it's speaking to something people think is real and because it is, Mm -hmm. but again, it's a really destructive way to speak to that and a really destructive way to orient oneself. So what, what are your thoughts on ways that we could do this in a more productive manner and have the kinds of conversations that would really be enriching for people's lives? Well, the the first thing I think of I always come back to the whole George Floyd thing. Mm-hmm. When when George Floyd came out and people said, don't ask questions. To ask questions is whiteness. To ask questions is showing your white superiority. Um, no, people should have been able to ask questions. We should never take questions off the table. When we're having equity meetings, you shouldn't get a priority to get to speak longer because of the color of your skin. Everyone should have the exact same time because that's how we say everyone has equal value. And that's what they say is the goal. Mm-hmm. So really maybe if 
maybe if we took the proclaimed goals of DEI and actually applied them with reason, mm-hmm. they would make sense. The problem is, is that they're a lie. They're, they're a manipulation and they're also masochistic. So instead of, I mean, I really do think that that's it. We bring all the people into the room and it's not just the Hispanic child who's saying, oh, all these white people in town, they bully me. Mm-hmm. It's also the white child being able to say, I'm afraid to make eye contact because I don't want to get punched in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Because it, that's that's the reality and everyone should be able to feel that way. Or kids should be able to say things like, um, I, I feel a lot of pressure to not do well in school because in my culture, we don't do well in school, mm-hmm. you know? And then a white child should be able to say, if this is their situation, um, you know, my parents don't care about this. My, my, my dad's in prison, right? So, mm-hmm. um, and a black child should be able to say, I don't relate to this because I live on the upper, upper crest side. And I, you know, my parents are doctors Mm -hmm. and none of that should be shamed. The gay child should be able to say, I don't think it's my teacher's business who I sleep with Mm -hmm. or who I want to sleep with. Mm -hmm. I think it's creepy. You're old. I'm not, you know, like they should be (laughs) able to have honest conversations that we aren't letting them have because the goal of this stuff is division. Um, so, and we also have to not be afraid of it. So I taught for the month of February, I taught uh, black history and excellence. And you would get people saying, I don't think you should touch that. You know, black history is American history. 85% of me agrees with that. But if we're gonna teach black history and they are, then we have to be able to combat their stories of police. Policing has always been racist Mm. to stories about covert Michigan where police managed the town and they were black. They were Mm. black freed and escaped slaves and they managed the town and there was interracial marriage and there were black judges. You have to be able to have truth in these conversations. We are stripping truth away you know, like science versus the science, race conversations versus the appropriate race conversations. No, we have to teach our children and we have to be willing and we're dumb. We're, we are as parents, as parents in our 40-ish areas, right? We are raised by this Mm. and this makes us stupid. Mm-hmm. so we're we're dumb and we think you know it's easy and so our kids aren't being taught to critically think and so we have to go backwards and we have to teach our kids to critically think we have to teach our kids life isn't handed to you you aren't owed anything by anyone um and the greatest the great journey of life is is to become mature not to go backwards and become infants that need to be taken care of. I think that's a universal truth that if we all had, we would be in better shape. So it's really about honoring the experience of the individual 
and not silencing people based on your preconceptions of what they will have to say or should have to say. And in bringing to the table all the voices and allowing the cultural space for the sharing of the widely varied experiences that people will have had without shaming them based on preset expectations. Yeah, it's like if you just took a list and said, what are the characteristics of a good human being? And then looked around and saw that in other people, we would be a whole lot better off than projecting what we think on others. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. And I I, I think that's very encouraging that you're hearing, for instance, from young teachers that are seeing things the way that you do and that are seeing your work and reaching out to you. Do you have a sense of optimism for where we're going or are you concerned? And what, what are your, where are you with that as you look towards the future? I'm very, very, very concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that the, I believe that the only way to save anything is to go backwards. I, I do. I think that we need to go backwards and find why was it you know Martin Luther King may have had issues and been somewhat problematic in certain ways but why was it that we appreciate what he said because it resonated with all of us because we should not be looking at people by the color of their skin but by the content of their character and character is important and we have to teach our kids that character is important I think that our I think that a lot of our millennials and a lot of our gen Gen Zers, that's not today, right? Or, or Gen X, anyways, whatever. Not the not not our children today. Okay, mm-hmm. our children who are still under our own roofs. I think we have a lot of hope for. I think they watched the last couple of years and were like, "That makes no sense." And so we have we still have that power as long as we keep it. But we are in a war. That's what I think. I, th- I think we're in a war and I don't know how, I don't know if we win. Mm. For me, again, as a person of faith, I believe in the end I win anyways. <laughs> I just would prefer not to go through all the messy stuff, but we're in the messy stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the hope comes from knowing that we can literally start today. You can literally today take your kids and have conversations with them and don't hide any of the truth from them. Mm-hmm. Because if you hide the truth from them, if you don't steep them in truth, they're going to walk out into their classrooms and they're going to be told a bunch of lies. School counselors are going to get their hands on them. Mm-hmm. And that is probably the scariest thing I can think of. So, um, as far as I'm concerned, the person that I am, there's always hope, mm-hmm. but I'm also a realist. And if, if parents don't take action and don't kind of, you know, grab their armor and, and put a shield around them, their families, mm-hmm. then I'm really concerned about where we're headed. And you held up your phone a little while ago to make a point about how they're making us dumb. And I, I couldn't agree more. And I personally, this is just my own little plug for taking your kids off screens as much as possible. 
screen-free childhood to the degree you can. I think that, that and that's just my two cents. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> yeah. But do you have any, any final thoughts or any, do you want to give some resources or plug your channel or tell people where they can follow the work that you're doing? Sure. Yeah. My channel could be found. Um, it's called be not afraid, but if you're looking for it, it's under Carib Marcel on YouTube. Um, Alvin Louie has done amazing work with the, oh no, I've lost my train of thought. Courage is a habit. The courage is a habit podcast. Um, it really shows you what is going on and you need to realize again, that this is a war, which means that people will lie straight to your face. So, um, trust your gut, but also just do everything you can to educate yourself. Another person that I highly recommend listening to, like everywhere I drive, I'm listening to is James Lindsay. Mm -hmm. Always, because I want to understand what's going on. Because if you, if you aren't smart enough to understand how they're thinking, then you can't combat it. Because it's, it's like a, oh, uh, what is that? That creature with many arms. Like an octopus. And, or, or, or a snake. This, this okay, snake, yeah, yeah. Lives, right? A hydra. Yeah, a hydra, a hydra. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's like a hydra and the more you cut off, the more that keep yep. growing mm -hmm. and also find your people, find your tribe. And the way you find your tribe is by speaking up and it don't care if people tell you you're crazy and you need to wear a foil hat. Just, just find your tribe and hold them close. I think that's yeah. wonderful advice. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I have enjoyed every time we've talked and and I really appreciate you weighing in and good luck with your debate next week. Thanks. I appreciate it. That is great that you're doing that and getting out there and, and being brave and giving a voice to all these more complex thoughts than what we're hearing and more serious. And I, I echo your concerns and um, also your hope. So right. thank you again, Carrie. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you.